If you have a Bible with you, turn with me please to the book of Leviticus. <coughs> the book of Leviticus please. And chapter 10, Leviticus chapter 10. Just a few little verses here and then we'll be going over to 1 Peter. Leviticus chapter 10, perhaps uh, not the most well-known story in Leviticus, but we will uh, attempt to work our way through it. And if you look at the scriptures, you'll write, I don't think it's too far in the story, you should know it. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse number 1. All along, we could hear a Bible reflect. And Nadab and Abednego, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. <clears throat> and, there, and there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, Mark this little phrase, This is, this is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come by me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Just want to read verse number one again. And they down on a the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put strange fire therein, and put incense thereupon, and offered, or if you have a margin, brought near, brought near strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Then come over to First Peter with me. First Peter chapter one. Sorry, First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, just breaking in the verse number verse number six. First Peter two and verse six. <clears throat> Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and the stone of stumbling, and the rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, Market, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him, who hath called you out of darkness, into his marvellous light, which in time past were, were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. The Lord will uh, speak and not and, uh, honour his word and bless him. Friends, I don't know if you know anything about the book of Leviticus, but the book of Leviticus can be described as a book of pictures. If you come to the first one to six chapters of Leviticus, You'll know, that, of course, that the offerings are there. You'll get the burnt offering, you'll get the meat offering, the peace offering, and the sin of the trespass offering. We're not going to go into those. But each one pointed and pictured the Lord Jesus Christ in his own precious and beautiful way. It's a book of pictures. It's also a book of priests, because in Exodus you will have the, you have the consecration of the priests, and in Exodus we see the functioning of the priests, They've started to carry out their work. They, they've been consecrated. They've brought their little bull and goats. And, this fun, and the priesthood is starting to function in the tabernacle. It's a book of priests. It's a book of pictures. It's also a book of the presence of the Lord. Because if you know anything about the start of the Old Testament, we can put it this way. In Genesis, we have fallen man needing to be redeemed. In Exodus, we have fallen man, in the case of Israel, being redeemed. Of course, we have the Passover lamb in chapter 12. If we come into Leviticus, 
It's redeemed. It's redeemed Israel coming into the presence of God. And friends, we're going to try to elaborate on that, but that's what this is about. Leviticus is about being brought near into the presence of a holy God. We read it there that Nadab and Abed, who came, came near, or if you have a Newbury margin, they brought, they, they brought near, they came forth into the presence of God, but they came near in their own way. I want to speak to you this morning for a moment or two about worship. We live in a generation which, and in a dispensation which is surrounded by worship. You don't have to go very far before you see churches, assemblies and buildings having boards and, and even on Facebook advertising different meetings, different worship meetings. And indeed when you come to them, they employ the service of a worship leader. We have to take it in another sphere. We could go to Christian bookshops, and uh, whether it be the Faith Mission, whether it be Down books, whether it be Beulah books and Bibles, there's always a section of CDs and DVDs portraying worship. In fact, we have so much worship in our, in our churches and in our assemblies and in our bookshops, I would say that the shelves and the bookshelves in, in, in uh, Christian bookshops are almost buckling, they're almost breaking under the weight of CDs and DVDs of artists putting out new songs and new tracks and hymns and choruses all in the idea of worship. We live in a dispensation which is surrounded with a worship experience or a world of worship, if you like. But I believe, friends, if we, and also on the surface, from the very broad spectrum of things in general, we have worship. But I think it's became distorted. You see, these things, these, not them all, I can't be dogmatic, not them all, there are some very good ones, but some would, they say, they play on the experience, they play on feelings, they play, they play, on, play on emotions, the experience of the thing. Others will, will fill up with vain repetitions and words that just constantly go on and on and on and perhaps have not a very scriptural basis. So we can conclude that worship on the, on, the, on the natural surface, on the broad scale of things, encourages the believer today to engage in a world of worship that plays on feeling, that plays on experience, that plays on the emotion. But I believe, friends, we've become slightly distorted to what it is. In this chapter we find Nadab and Abihu coming before the Lord. And it's a chapter where, where they come before God, and it's interesting that God has established the priesthood. He showed them what exactly and how things should be done. The Apostle Paul, writing to the New Testament, could say that everything be done decently and in order. Even Moses was told to do everything according to the pattern. Well, in this little passage we read, tucked away in the book of Leviticus, we read, as we've said, it's a book of pictures, priests, but most importantly, about the presence of God. You see, Nadab and Abihu were coming into God's presence, and it says that they came and they brought strange fire. You see, worship can be defined. John chapter 4. You remember when the Lord stood or sat on the wall of Sychar with the woman of with the woman of the well, and they discoursed and talked. What did the Lord say in John 4? He said that he says, Those that worship me must worship him in spirit and in truth. So worship can most definitely be defined. Worship's not only defined, worship's desire. The, the Lord says again in the Gospels, he says, The Father seeketh such to worship him. It's desired, it can be defined, 
But I think it's in this case with Nadab and Ahu, a little picture, and we know that these things were written of foretime for our learning. That wasn't its desired, it is to be defined, but here we find it defined. For because I believe, friends, not and the Lord laid this word on my heart, and perhaps not in this assembly, I'm not saying that, I'm not here to be hard, I'm not here to be harsh, but in general, our worship can be tainted, our worship can be defiled, our worship can be not the way that God appointed it to be. You see, friends, here we find Nadab and Abihu, they come near to God, and they're called as interesting because it shows and highlights the feebleness and, uh, of this new relationship of a priesthood that the Lord instigated here to Moses and to Aaron. You see, friends, it's also quite sad because if you go back to Exodus chapter 24, these two priests were privileged. They were the two that were allowed to come up with Moses and Aaron and see the glory of the Lord. We'll not turn to it, but in Exodus 24, you'll read that. They got a sense of the glory of God. They got a sense of what it is to come into his presence and to see him in all of his glory. Yet, come only a number of chapters over and we find that they are consumed by the fire of God. Just jump back to chapter 9. And you'll see what a glorious hope there was now for Israel. What a hope there had been in the establishment of the priesthood. Uh, Moses had commanded Aaron to come with a sacrifice. And you can mark the verse in verse number 6. It says, And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that he should do. And the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. And it says there again in verse number 4. The Lord and of meat offered many of the God, for today the Lord will appear unto you. So the Lord will appear unto you, and the Lord shall appear unto you in verse number 4 and in verse number 6. And just coming to the end, it says in verse 24, And there came a fire out from before the Lord, and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Says there the glory in verse number twenty-three, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. What a wonderful picture in chapter nine. The priesthood has been established, they've been consecrated, and we'll deal with that later on. And it was a high note. It was a wonderful note. In the history of the children of Israel, God had now come into their midst. He came into the tabernacle of Shiloh and he and he dwelt among his people. And it's sad that says one or two verses in. On the very first day, on the start of the priesthood being established, Nadab and Abihu come, they offer strange fire, and they're consumed. And the commandment is given, I will be sanctified, and then will come nigh me, I will, and, and I will be glorified in the people. I want to ask you this morning, dear friends, the question as we set out in this message, why have you come out to this assembly this morning? Perhaps it is to take a box. Timothy reminds us that there's a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Maybe you've came to take a box. Maybe you've came to see who else is out. Perhaps even you've came to the assembly this morning, and I hope this is the case, to meet with God. You've came, as a little later on, I'm glad to see you doing the Lord's table. And as we come around the table, can I encourage those who are saved to stay? But that is what it's about. I trust that we've came out this morning to worship. To worship, to praise him, to come into his presence, to hear from God, to be spoken to, but most of all, to have his presence amongst us, because these two men came into his presence. 
It's interesting again, if you have a margin, what the name Nadab means. It means liberal. And when I discovered that, I realized, goodness, this message fits rather well. Nadab means liberal. And we live in a generation, we live in a dispensation where things are becoming liberal. Where things, where anything now goes. When it comes to worship, when it comes to the assembly, when it comes to church, when it comes to the house of God, things are being compromised with. Some things have been compromised, things are being put in that perhaps 30 years ago you would never ever have allowed. And what happens? The results of it, and what are the reasons for it? Maybe, oh, we'll, we'll get better numbers if we do it this way. Or we'll be more attractive to people if we do it this way. Or maybe they might say, oh, people don't want to hear that old, that old verse-by-verse exposition anymore. We have to do something to attract them. We have to make our worship appealing for them. No, the Lord says here, uh, this is the, that the Lord speaks, saying, I will be sanctified and then come near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. We often we quote it. It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. This morning as we come into his presence, we come into the presence of the Holy God. Don't need to turn to it, but Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, I'll read it to you. This is the God that we come to this morning. <clears throat> the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above us stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Uh, and one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. This is the one that we come into the presence of this morning. So as I ask why we come into the, his presence this morning, I want us to first highlight, and time is going rightly, but I want us to think for a moment or two just uh, what it is to meet with God. I want us to see how great it is, what a privilege it is, and what a scriptural thing it is for God to dwell amongst his people. You know, my friends, it's a blessing to think about it, that God has always, no matter what the dispensation, God has always desired to be amongst his people. We could go for back to the very start, to the book of Genesis, and we'll read how God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and he walked with them <coughs> in the garden. As we come a little further, you'll find it there in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 25, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. What a thought, God dwelling amongst his people. And he said, he went on to say, that in uh, Exodus, he says, The cloud covered the tent, and the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Of course, when us with one after, after Genesis and, and the Exodus, we come into the tabernacle with all its beautiful pictures, all its beautiful colors, all, this, all the beautiful types there is in the tabernacle of the Lord Jesus. We could talk about the curtains, we could talk about the construction, we could talk about the consecration of it, and the colors, the, the blue, the gold, the fine twisted linen, all the pointed to him. Can I encourage you, we recently finished our own little study of it, the beauty of the tabernacle, and how the colors, the curtains, and everything about it pointed forward a shadow of things which were yet to come. But then, my friends, it's a sad thing too, that story. You remember in First Samuel, in chapter 4, you remember in the story of the Samuels, how Hannah prayed for her son. She went to Eli, and God answered that prayer, and Samuel was born. 
and it tells us that when Samuel was born, he, God spoke to him and he judged Israel. But in 1 Samuel 4, you remember how the, the Israel went down against the Philistines and it wasn't too long before the Ark of the Covenant was carried off. And it tells us, it tells us there, when the little man came, the messenger came to Eli, he fell and broke his neck and died because the Ark of God was removed. Indeed, the psalmist in Psalm 78 speaks of it like that and says, So that he forsake the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he had placed himself therein. God forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. He left, and indeed then Ichabod was born. And what does that mean? It means the glory of God is departed. And that's the sad end. God, and I say that, he never came back to Shiloh. The glory of God, his presence, never came back to Shiloh. You see, friends, I think that's a picture of many assemblies, many churches, many places of worship, churches today. The glory of God has departed. He he was with Adam and Eve. He was in the tabernacle. Soon he came to be, of course we know the story. Then he came to be in the temple. David prepared the building work. And Solomon built that great temple. And God was there again. And indeed we come further into Ezekiel. And he could say, and he could see the glory of God departing. And how did that happen? That happened when, when, when the Jew, Israel rejected the Messiah. And, and it never came back. But again, Ezekiel could look forward to a greater day, the Millennial Temple, when God will dwell with his people again. Now perhaps that was a bit lengthy and a bit informative, but what about today? What about today? As we gather out this morning in Grange Baptist, how does God be with us? Well, we're not, we know that God doesn't dwell, of course, in tabernacles made with hands. We know that he doesn't come in the same Shekinah of glory as he came in the tabernacle of Shiloh. He doesn't come in the same way that he excuse me, came in Solomon's temple. But it says, and I need to read it, where the two or three are gathered, there I am, in the midst. And friends, I, and first we know that the Holy Spirit is in every believer. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 it says, Know ye not that your body is the, ta- is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And indeed it says that's the individual believer. As soon as a person is saved, as soon as a person is redeemed, we are baptized into the body of the church. And the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the believer. And that's only the believer. There's also the worldwide body of the church. We are told that, we're told that it's fitly framed together and built up as a spiritual house. So we have three levels. The, believe, the Spirit is in the believer. The Spirit is in the church. But this is what we're going for. He's in the local assembly. Well, read that in First Corinthians. It says, "Well, we, in First Corinthians three, we're told that we're told about it there. How the Spirit is in there and the local assembly. We get a picture in Revelation. You remember how the Lord, when He could appear to John on the Isle of Patmos, He could say, He's the Lord in the midst of the lampstands. And every assembly, every assembly, every church is a golden candlestick to bear testimony." And friends, I don't intend to speak the rest of the morning on assembly truth as much as we'd enjoy it. But it's safe to say we could talk about his presence, which is in the assembly. We've quoted the verses in 1 Corinthians 3. He desires to be in the assembly. In 1 Timothy 3 and 15, we're told the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then, my friends, that's the, his presence that's in the assembly. We could talk about what about this preciousness in the assembly, so we've read it there in Peter, unto him, there, therefore, unto ye, therefore, which believe, he 
is precious. But then, I don't want to think about the, his presence in the assembly, nor even his preciousness in the assembly. We can talk about him being the preeminent one in the assembly. She's precious, she's described as a little flock, that's her pathway. She's described as a chaste virgin, that's her purity. She's described as a golden candlestick, that's her testimony. And she's described as many, many other things. And a tillage of God, that's her planting. And someday go out and look at those wonderful pictures, how he describes the local assembly. It's not the preciousness, the pictures, or even his presence in the assembly that I want to gather in the closing moments of this meeting. It's the people in the assembly. It's the people that have came out this morning and gathered. And this is, you might say, why did you read about Nadab and Abihu? You barely spoke on them. Well, now we're coming to you. The people that are here this morning. It's the people that have come out this morning. We will come back now to these two priests. They came, the idea is, as we've said, being brought near, and they were not sanctified. There's, you might say to me, you, that was a different age altogether. That's in the book of Leviticus. What could I possibly have in common with Nadab and Abihu? Well, friends, I want to try and draw out a few things that you might surprise you, that we could be very, very like these two priests in this gallery, in this little hall, and this little assembly this morning. First of all, there's their standing as priests. We read it there over in First uh, Peter 5. We're called our royal priesthood. We're called our royal priesthood. You know, friends, the priest was consecrated. We're told in Exodus how the priest was consecrated. And it's a lovely picture. Well, first of all, they were cleansed. They had Aaron, Aaron, Aaron and his sons, they had to bathe. They had to wash before they could carry out their priestly duty. That shows me that we have to be cleansed. How we can quote it. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So they were cleansed. They weren't only cleansed, they were clothed. Because it was after they washed in the lather that they put on their priestly garments. You might say to me, you and I didn't have that. What's that got to do with me? Well, are we not told to put on the Lord Jesus? Are we not like the prodigal? Whenever we return unto him, he robes us, puts the best robe on us, and we're robed with righteousness. We're called our royal priesthood. Deep, Exodus 19 and 6, where God delivered his people, it says that he would immediately begin a work of interceding. He would have a priesthood from the tribe of Levi that would come, intercede for the people, and come in to the tabernacle and to present the blood on the Day of Atonement. But would come right into his presence. This is the blessed position, friends, of all believers who are made our royal priesthood. They were cleansed. They were clothed. Something else. They were consecrated. Whenever that priest had been washed, whenever he had his priestly garments for glory and for beauty cut on, there was something else. He was consecrated. They took the anointing oil and they anointed him. What does that speak to you of? The Holy Spirit. Get in the picture. There's not, although we're not priests in the way they were, we're not coming with a little bulls and goats this morning, obviously, but you can see the parallels. You can see the pictures. They were cleansed. They were clothed. They were consecrated. They were anointed. What are we anointed with? We're anointed with the Holy Ghost. Whenever we shall already. Whenever a believer is sealed, whenever we believe, we're sealed unto the day of redemption, Ephesians. And the Holy Spirit indwells us. He guides us. He leads us. And we have the Holy Spirit abiding within us. That's this picture 
of consecration. So they were cleansed, they were clothed, they were consecrated, and they were also covered. On the day when these priests came to, be, to carry out and begin their office as a priest, the blood that came with their little sacrifice, we'll not turn to it for time, see, but they were brought a little sacrifice. What does that tell me? There always has to be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There was always a sacrifice. Only upon this merit have we, can we do anything for God. It was only under the value of atoning blood. Not their own. That tells me that we're not our own. That we're bought with a price. We've not been redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood. So my friend, this priesthood was distinguished, and we are to be a distinguished people. People should notice us. These men were to carry out a particular testimony. And friends, that tells me that we are more like these the priesthood than we possibly like to admit. But on Adam and Abihu, the sad reality is they had went through all of these things. They had been cleansed, they had been clothed, they had been anointed with the, with the oil, and they had brought a little sacrifice and were under the merit of atoning blood. Yet, they were consumed. So, our first point, our standing as priests. And how much better is ours? I should say that. We're, God, we're a heavenly people. This was his earthly people. We, friends, are a heavenly people. A royal priesthood. Something that Israel, and God's not finished with Israel, but something that is far greater, far better, far more precious, far more special than what the old priesthood ever was, is what we are today, a royal priesthood to intercede and to pray. But we'll come to that. So there's our standing as priests. There's not only our standing as priests, there's our service as a priest. You see, as a royal priesthood, we have a role to play. These two priests, Nadab and Abihu, they came into the presence of God. Indeed, the martyr says, brought near. They came with a little censer. You can imagine them. Little priests coming with all his garments of glory and beauty, coming through the holy of holy place, uh, yet the holy place, and then into the holy of holies, with his garments of glory and beauty, with his little censer, and then the, and putting the blood on the day of atonement. And he went through the veil. He could only go in once a year. He could go only in once in his life. And he could have died if he had went in and if he had went in the wrong way. But friends, we this morning have access into the very throne room of heaven. Hebrews reminds us that we can come by a new and a, fair, and a loving way. We're told that he will be sanctified in them that come near unto him. You know, that tells me, friend, that the priest had a service to do. That was to intercede for the people. That was to bring a little goat, a little ram, whether it was a meat, peace, or a burnt offering. They were to come on behalf of the people. They had a service to do. Whether it was to present the sacrifice. Whether it was to trim the lambs. Whether it was to go in on the Day of Atonement. They had a job to do. That tells me, friend, as a royal priesthood, we have a job to do. We know that we are not teaching a mediator. We're not mediators. We have one in heaven who intercedes for us. He makes intercession for us. But we are expected to intercede, to bring men and women to the throne of grace, to obtain help in time we can come boldly onto the throne of grace, whereby we can obtain help in time of need. You know, in Ezekiel, you'll read about how God won. Well, we, we, read about, we read about how there was a gap in the hedge, and God searched, but he found no man to make up the hedge. And we read as well about Moses, how he stood in the breach, 
between the loving and the dead. That's what we are to do. Whereas the end of the scene, remember how Paul could say that prayers be made for all men. So friends, through we can come into the very holy of holies. Why? Because of the shed blood. Christ has offered up one sacrifice for sin forever and is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Because of that one sacrifice, one sacrifice, once and for all, forever, our great high priest is now seated on the right hand of heaven, right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. That's Hebrews teaching. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, it's a better service. Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a king priest, one where said there how the priests, he could only go in once a year, he could only go in once in his life, and it was constantly being done, constantly, constant sacrifice, constant repetition, it could never deal with the main issue of sin. But this man, after, after he had offered up one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. There's his perfect priesthood. He was sinless, holy, harmless, and undefiled. It was a perfect priesthood. It was a permanent priesthood. For it tells us, Thou art a priest forever. It's a perfect priesthood. It's a permanent priesthood. I said another one. It's a princely, it's a princely uh, priesthood that the Lord Jesus had because he. Our sons were after the tribe of Levi. We know that the Lord is the lion in the tribe of Judah. He's the royal priest. He's the king priest. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Yet, he's interceding for us this morning. And he's seated. He's the better service. He's the better sacrifice. That's coming in the Hebrews 10. It says, in Hebrews 9 and 10, it tells us that he has obtained eternal redemption for us. The old priesthood entered in continually. But once in his life, once a year, and he never sat down. There was no seat in the holy place. That of all the beautiful items of furniture, there was never a seat. Because the work was never, ever done. My friends, but we have the resolve of the perfect servant. The one who would go to Calvary. The one who would lay down his life for others. The one who could say, no greater love hath any man than this. And a man laid down his life for his friend. There's the resolve of the perfect, perfect servant that from the track he turned not back and he laid down that perfect sacrifice for sin once and forever. There's the resolve of the perfect servant. There's the revelation of the new and loving way that we can now enter into with boldness. The old priests, if I remember rightly, they sometimes tied a rope onto him in case when he went into the holy place he was unclean and he died and they had to pull him out because they couldn't go in. You get in the picture of how holy the Lord is. Yet we can go in boldly, freely. It says, let us draw near in full confidence of faith. Why? Because the perfect sacrifice has been made by our high priest who makes intercession for us. So there's the standing as priests where our main royal priesthood there's the service of the priests who are expected to intercede, to make prayers for men and women. On what basis? The basis of our high priest who's making intercession for us. I want to think soon about the sacrifice of these priests. The priest was, was ordained to offer, <coughs> to offer, what is it, 
to offer sacrifices, coming back now to these two men of a Nadab and Abihu. They offered, they came, they uh, to answer my question, why have you came out to church this morning? We started with that little question, why have you came out to church this morning? Coming back to your question, you know my friend, it's to come into his presence, but I hope it's to give him something. Because that's what worship meant. It's to give something back. It's to give him something. We don't come like <clears throat> like Nadab and Abihu with our little censer and our little sacrifice lamb or goat and offer that up. We do that. But we do come with something. And they recorded in the in the open air quite often. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But we do come with something. We're told to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, as we come out this morning, every man, every woman, whether whether whoever you are, where we can offer him something, as we come before him, as we brought near into his very presence this morning, the one who stands in the midst of the golden candlesticks, we have something to offer him today. I don't care who you are, I don't care your background, but if you are a believer today, you have something to offer him. As we stand and we sing those wonderful choruses, I hope you're doing it from your heart. As we come around the Lord's table and our brother brings a word. You know, a brother in Christ always told me this back in the lifeboat. He always said at the table, the word is not for the people, it's for God. That's the moment, that's what I'm doing this morning. When a brother or a pastor comes and preaches to you, that's giving it to the people. But when we come around the Lord's table, or when we come to worship, it's different. That's what it's given back. Friends, are we giving something back? When we come into his presence, God seeketh those to worship him, it's giving something back. I want to think about the, I'm losing time, but I want to think about the substance of the sacrifice. The substance of it. The nature of it. You could say the sweetness of it. Because at the start of Leviticus, what made them acceptable, some of them were a sweet savour offering. It was sweet. When it rose up, when it was put upon the altar, and it was burnt, it rose as a sweet savour unto God. Why was that? Because it was sweet in the Father's nostrils because of its substance. I, you know, what, what, that is what it was made up of, what the nature of it was. Allow me to suggest a few things that should be the substance of. You know, my friend, what about, it says to obey is better than sacrifice. That's the first thing we can offer up. We can offer up our obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. We can offer our obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. To bring a wholehearted obedience to Him. You could say, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to serve you for all the time I have left. There's one such spiritual sacrifice we could raise up. So, obedience. What about worship? Come magnify the Lord with me. The psalmist could say, and let us not come empty-handed. That if the Lord's, at the Lord's table, John 9 verse 31 says, But if any man be a worshipper of God, and doeth it, it will be him he heareth. A worshipper of God. So we can offer our obedience. We can offer him our worship. Romans chapter 12. And you can turn to it, but it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is, your reasonable service. I beseech you, our brother, I didn't know he was going to speak on it, my brother spoke about that on our Friday night youth meeting, and that word beseech is the word to continually beg, to continually plead, 
Paul was pleading, beseeching with these people in Romans 12 to offer yourselves your reasonable sacrifices. It's the logical thing to do. God has done therefore. What's the therefore? Because of everything he has done for us from Romans 1 to Romans uh, 10. Romans 10. That's what he's done for us. And we'll be preaching from Romans 12 morning tonight. But friends, all he's done for us it is our reasonable service to give something back to him. So there's the substance of it. It says again, it says of those, Paul wrote about those in Macedonia, who offered themselves first. It's a living sacrifice to get on the altar and to offer ourselves holy, acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. I can recall the day, a number of years ago, our brother Stephen Riddle was preaching in a little mission hall. I can't remember the chapter he was on. I can't remember the, what he said. But I, what verses he read, but I remember what he said. And the day after, I went out to Edible Forest Park, and it was a battle. And the hands went up, and I said, Lord, whether it be the car, the, the relationships, the ministry, whatever it is, it's on the altar. I wonder, can you say that this morning? There's the substance of the sacrifice. I want you to think about the Saviour and the sacrifice. Because, friends, what made these offerings in the Old Testament so acceptable unto God? That was because, friend, <clears throat> there was something of Christ in them. J.M. Darby puts it this way. The, the, in the tabernacle, to understand this, I hope you get where I'm going with it. The golden, uh, the golden altar was where this, the smoke rose as a sweet savour unto God. That pictured worship. The brazen altar... Outside the, outside the tent was where the little beasts, the coats, the bulls, the rams, were sacrificed and burnt up. But it was the coal from the brazen altar that was used to light to, to, to burn the incense of praise. The coal from the sacrifice was used on the fire of the golden altar which spoke of worship. That tells me in a little picture that there had to be sacrifice. The burnt offering on that altar spoke about Christ. The burnt offering was well pleasing because it pictured Christ. And this is what I'm getting at. The substance of it, but the sweetness of it, was because the Saviour was in it. There has to be something of Christ in it, friend. There has to be something of Christ. Indeed, how we often quote that hymn, one of our favourites. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. It's the motive, what we offer up, don't offer anything if it's got an motive. Don't offer anything. Just sit and go in and go out. If there's nothing of Christ in it, if your motive isn't right, the coal that was used of sacrifice that spoke of him was used for worship. The, the substance of it, the Saviour was in it, the Spirit had to be in it. And it says spiritual sacrifices. I'm going over my time. But friend, the Spirit had to be in it. You see, friends, in that holy place, there was, a, there was a candlestick, and there was, of course, the what spoke of worship. The candlestick spoke about the Spirit, and whenever it was lit, the Spirit shone and lit up that entire room. That tells me the Spirit had to be in the worship. The worship has to be done in the Spirit. So, as we close, the service as priests, our standing as priests, our uh, sacrifice as priests this has to be of Christ and it has to be in the spirit as I close I want to think about the strangeness and these two priests 
And they that will abide you, sons of Aaron, to either of them the censer, that spoke of worship, and put fire therein, and put incense thereupon, and offered strange fire. The word is the word foreign. You know, we can read on, we're told what it was they actually offered. They came drunk, they came with wine, they came with strong drink and with wine, and it was the wrong sort of fire that was foreign. Now, I'm not going to go off on a message about how a Christian shouldn't drink alcohol, maybe shouldn't, but wine and strong drink is always, the, is always a picture in the scripture of the flesh. Sometimes, when you admit, it can be used as a picture of joy, but mostly it's used as a picture of the flesh. You see, why were these two priests, when they came to worship, when they came with a little sacrifice and came near into the Holy of Holies, why did the fire of God consume them? It's because they came in the flesh. It's because they came in the flesh. And they were told in Galatians, I wonder can we look at it, hopefully we can find it. You don't need to turn it if you want. Galatians chapter 5, where we're given a list about what is of the flesh. We're given a list of exactly what the things of the flesh are. Now the works of the law are. It speaks about the flesh and the things that are of the flesh, friend. Galatians 5 and verse 19. For I, through the law of death, for the law that I might live unto God, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but the Christ liveth in me, and mark it, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a list there. I can't quite find it now, but there's a list. Of the, of the things that are accustomed to the flesh. So it was foreign. You see, friends, the Bible says, let no flesh glory in his presence. Because men and women, when we come in our own way, God seeketh those to worship, but this was laid out in the Bible's mistake. They came, not, they called not discerning, they said, it will be okay. But friends were told about the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. We're told that some even sleep, sleep, and some are sickly among you because they have not discerned the Lord's body. That's bringing in the New Testament terms. My friends, this is serious. We need to come in the right attitude. It was far we are hindered when we come into his presence, when we come in the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are, are manifest, that's it, and it gives us the list of them. Let no flesh glory in his presence. And that we could come in the flesh. We could come in a form. Timothy says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Coming tech boxing. Coming in a form. Coming in a fashion. We could come even with feeling. Getting caught up in emotion. Getting caught up with the experience of it all. But we're not told to come in the flesh. We're not told to come with feeling. We're not, well, I know there's always some bit of feeling, but if we're using that as our basis, it's not the right way. We can come in flesh, we can come in a fashion, we can come in a form, we can come with feeling, but we're told to come in the faith. But the Son of God, and I live the life that I live when I live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, friends, an answer to that question, I'm finished. Are we like Nadab and Abihu? We're coming to worship. The Lord seeketh those to worship him. There's our standing as priests. We've been made a royal priesthood. 
rejoice and be privileged in that position that God has brought those of us who are saved and born again into. As our service as priests, where we intercede. Why? Because of the great sacrifice our great high priest has made for us. And if you're struggling today, we can come boldly onto the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need. There's the sacrifice of these priests. They said they, they were to, where they offer up spiritual sacrifices, and the substance of it should always be of Christ, and the spirit should always be in it, illuminating it, and making it real. And then there was the strangeness of these two priests. They offered according to their own way, and there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof were the ways of death. Friends, we come to worship, and I hope I haven't completely deflated you. But friends, as we come to worship him this morning, I want us to remember the one that we're coming to this morning. The one whom the angels in Isaiah 6 cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen.